Founded in 1883, the Metropolitan Opera in New York City is one of the most dynamic opera companies in the world, based at the Metropolitan Opera House in the Lincoln Centre on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. The company has attracted some of the greatest performers and conductors of the 20th and 21st centuries. The Met, as it's known, is also amongst the most innovative companies in the world, and in December 2006, they broadcast a series of six performances via satellite into movie theatres, or cinemas as we would call them, in North America, Japan, Britain, and other European countries. The series opened with Mozart's The Magic Flute and since then has become a huge part of the company's operatic offering. Now the Met has teamed up with the Irish National Opera in a new partnership that will see live transmissions of 10 productions in cinemas throughout Ireland. The Met, live in HD, will begin on Saturday, October the 22nd with the Opera Medea by the Italian composer Luigi Carabini. And here to tell us more is the director of Irish National Opera, Fergus Shield. I suppose, uh, Fergus, many cinema goers will, will have seen the trailers for these operas uh, in, in, in cinemas over the last few years. It, it's a particular case. How important or what's the nature of this development really for opera worldwide, would you say? Well, it's great. Uh, good evening, Sean. It's great to see that the uh, Met is back now after a hiatus, obviously, mm. by COVID. And as you say, people are familiar. The Met uh, operas have been coming to us here in, in cinemas all around the country. And it's a really spectacular uh, experience. I'm sure some of your listeners will have been to see the operas and they, they they are brilliantly shot. They've got fantastic performers. They've got great behind the scenes uh, <laughs> interviews with mm. people. Uh, some, some of the key star um, singers act as a kind of a uh, uh, maitre d', like a host for the evening. Um, so you get to know the personalities of some of the key singers and the people backstage. So it's a, it's a really great way of experiencing opera. And of course, with 10 operas in the, in the in the current season, you know, for those who love their opera and can't get enough of it, it's a great way of, yeah. of, of hearing pieces that maybe you, you're not getting in performance all year round. And what was the attraction for Irish National Opera in partnering in this particular part of the, the Mets programme, Fergus? Well, as I said, the, the, the season, uh, the, the Mets operas had gone into a, a hiatus and uh, the previous... Uh, arrangements needed to be reviewed so there was nobody nobody else really to take it over and we got asked and and we thought it was a great idea because uh, you know we were in touch with a lot of people that love opera we love opera and I think it's a nice uh, complimentary thing to do alongside our live performances Mm. that people if they want to attend us and get their opera live but they can also get all these other operas in in the cinema and so it just seemed like a really good natural fit that uh, I suppose it's a one-stop shop for sure, there's a very positive aspect to it. Many of us who might not have a chance to travel to the New York Met can go and see the operas in a way that we just wouldn't have an opportunity to do, you know, unless you have the the facilities to travel uh, and, and to find your way into the Met Opera itself in New York. This brings it right into a cinema, probably uh, uh, close to your locality. But there is that, da- or is there a danger, you know, p- during the pandemic, and I've heard this across a lots of live scenarios, uh, in, indeed in cinema itself, people got used to say, kind of seeing things at home, not having to go out and being able to sit in front of their own television set or their own computer and experience a lot of culture coming in in, in that fashion. How How do we strike the balance between Yes, of course, opening people up to seeing stuff that they wouldn't get a chance to see and still maintaining an interest in attending live performance. 
I mean, that's a huge issue, of course, because you're right. And the Met were very good, like straight off. I remember in the early days of COVID when we were all locked up at home, they were they put out all of their, you know, one up mm. a day. Like they, they went through extraordinary. Yeah. And, I, and I, I watched many of them myself and uh, they're a bit of a lifeline in a way. Um but I did, talking to a lot of people, people love that, but, but people also love seeing things live. So I think there's a place for both. And I think a lot of people learned during COVID how to, you know, get hooked their computer up to a good stereo system, get a great sound or get some wireless headphones. And, and you know, we all learned how to use these resources. So I just see it as something, you know, additional. Of course, uh, as, a, as a producer of live opera, we want, to come, we want people to come and see our shows in theatres. And that's a challenge as well, because, as you say, people have got used to seeing things at home. Also, people are working from home. So some people may not be in the city centre as much as they would normally be. Yeah. So there's a lot of challenges. Challenges for sure, um, and and we find uh, you know audience patterns are very unpredictable in a way. Now some things do well, some things are more of a challenge um, than previously. Uh, and, and I guess I guess we have to take the long term view. And, and I personally think that uh, more opera, more opportunities to experience yeah. opera is going to get people excited rather than less. Yeah, and, uh, and so the other aspect of it is that if you're kind of slightly afraid about dipping your toes into an opera, this you not only get the opera here, but you get all of that guidance through it that you've mentioned. And I suppose it is a way of kind of opening your mind up to, to maybe another art form or indeed to operas that you might say, I'm not sure if I want to see that. This is a way of doing well, it. And, and also it's a terrific experience because, you know, if you think of uh, when you go to a live opera, you're sitting in one seat, but here you've got so many different angles. So it's just it's just a different yeah. experience. You, you, you get you get to see the singers up close. You get to see their facial expressions. You do, of course, miss, you know, uh, one of the things I love most about seeing opera live is that communal experience that you're there gasping with the people beside you at the experience, you know. So yeah. I, I think there's a place for both. You yeah, know? And, and I mean, and I, 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 I love both. Myself. And I, I've experienced you know in terms of theatre the cinema thing too and you do get that communal experience because you are in a cinema watching it with people rather than being at home however let's talk a little bit about the the particular the the specifics of what's going to be on as part of the season starting with this Carabini opera uh, Medea poor old Carabini he gets a very hard time He's not terribly well known, and Medea is probably his most famous piece. But, however, uh, those of us who were at the Wexford Festival in 2017 will have seen Medea. And uh, um, so it, it has been done in Ireland quite recently. So I'm sure lots of people will know it. And it's a very striking piece. It's uh, written in the late 1700s, um, and it was. Uh, you know, it's it's that, that kind of cross between the end of you know say the Mozart and Haydn period of classical music and and getting toward more towards Beethoven, Berlioz, and people who are more mm. romantically orientated. So it's a it's a it's a piece that's kind of bursting out of its seams in a way. It's it's very dark and dramatic. And uh, Carabini was he was an Italian composer, but it doesn't sound very Italian. It's kind of it sounds to me more Germanic or Austrian in a way. Yeah, well, we, more you, like the, the, the Beethoven, who was you know who was a, Beethoven was a huge fan of Carabini. Carabini. Well, let's listen to a little section um, from this is a uh, Dei Toi Fili La Madre. Obviously, the Medea story is quite dark. She's singing. Medea is here. Sandra di Radvanovsky is singing to Jason. What is she singing about uh, uh, Medea at this point? So this is a uh, this is in Act One. It's one of the you know when we get to meet her first, and the the situation is that she is in love with a tenor, Jason, 
Um, but she has been abandoned by him, essentially, and uh, he's gone off to marry somebody else, or he's in the process of trying to marry somebody else, uh, which doesn't go down very well with her. And uh, so she, this area is about that she regrets. She's no longer loved. She's okay. uh, um, so very sorrowful. the voice of Sandra D. Radvanovsky singing the part of Medea in what will be the New York Met Live, the first in the season uh, of, of these operas that are going to be uh, streamed into cinemas around the country. Fergus Shield of Irish National Opera, who are partnering on this series of screenings, is speaking to me this evening. Um, and, and it starts with that, but it, it goes on from there. Ten very, you know, uh, important operas and all big, big successes, I think, in, in terms of what they've chosen. Anything that particularly stands out for you, uh, uh, Fergus? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, I, I mean, there's something for everybody here because if you like your your uh, adventurous contemporary opera, there's a new piece called The Hours by Kevin Putz, mm. uh, which is based on the the novel that was subsequently turned into a film um, by Michael Cunningham, and it has a really starry lineup of singers with Kelly O'Hara, Joyce Donato, and Renee Fleming. So that's one to look out for. There's also um, another new work by Terence Blanchard, uh, which is about a boxer, um, and uh, it's called that opera's called Champion. It's a, a world premiere. So you have those to look forward to. But if you prefer your Mozart, there's a Don Giovanni and a Magic Flute, both of them conducted by Natalie Stutzmann, who'd be known to Irish audiences. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the Rosen Cavalier because it's just about one of my favourite operas. You're a great Strauss man, in, aren't in you? A, in a, in a, it's on in April, not long after we're performing it live in Dublin. So there we go. You can see it in the board gosh in March and you can see it in cinemas in April. In April. So All right. Uh, beautiful, beautiful work. All right. And uh, Dublin, Belfast, Cork, Donegal, Galway, lots of venues, and I'm sure others will be announced, including, I believe, Limerick, Kerry, Sligo, and Wexford cinemas in those areas as well. Thanks for being with us this evening, Fergus. That's Fergus Shield, Director of Irish National Opera. And uh, that Medea that he told us about will be screened in various cinemas on October the 22nd. The season continues with La Traviata on November the 5th. And I should mention the hours that uh, Fergus mentioned there, the Kevin Putz Opera. Uh, the Met season live on radio will be back on RT Lyric FM on December the 10th. The season kicks off, in fact, there with the Kevin Putz premiere of the hours. Rene Fleming, Joyce DiDonato in the cast and others that Fergus mentioned to us. But if you want to find out full details of those cinema screenings, go to irishnationalopera.ie. Sad news has broken just within the last hour, news of the death of the actor and comedian Robbie Coltrane. Um, in recent years, of course, he found fame playing Hogwarts gamekeeper Hagrid in the Harry Potter movies. But uh, lots of people will remember him for his uh, multi-award winning role as the criminal psychologist Dr. Eddie Fitz Fitzgerald. And here he is in a, in a scene as Dr. Edward Fitz Fitzgerald trying to talk a man called Nigel down off the top of a building. 40 or 50 feet's enough, you know. Why so high? Too much time to think. 
You might change your mind halfway down. Lemmings. We laugh at lemmings, you know, for throwing themselves off cliffs, but I have a suspicion that the lemmings will have the last laugh. Because one day... What's your first name, by the way? Nigel. Nigel, God, I'd be suicidal. One day, Nigel, a lemming will fly. Tim Lang didn't kill himself, by the way, he was murdered. Pigeons did it, you know, millions of years ago. Threw themselves off cliffs. Millions of pigeons over thousands and thousands of years. Thudding, dead to the ground. And then one day, a pigeon flapped and it didn't hit the ground quite so hard. Then the day after that, one of them flew. Because it followed its instincts, Nigel. Man suppressed that instinct, which is why man will never fly, Nigel. Come on, let's do it. Come on, let's follow our instincts. Robbie Coltrane there as Dr. Edward Fitz Fitzgerald in the television series Cracker. Many people will remember him for that role. Others will remember him for his role in the Bond movies, GoldenEye, and The World Is Not Enough. He was involved in that as well. Wonderful comic actor, fans of Blackadder will remember him, famously playing the part of Dr. Samuel Johnson. Coltrane was made an OBE in 2006 in the New Year's Honours list for his services to drama, and he was awarded the BAFTA Scotland Award for Outstanding Contribution to Film in 2011. However, I think for contemporary audiences and certainly for younger listeners, so many people will know him more recently for his playing the part of Hagrid the Giant in the Harry Potter series of films and bringing to life one of the most beloved characters in that series of books. In 2007, he spoke to Michael Parkinson about his role in those films. Were you a fan for the movie? Huge fan. Were you? you? You read it to your children? I did. And as you read, did you imagine the characters? Well, you have to. Well, if you're an actor, you have to do all the voices. The children expect it. Oh, right. Yes, no monotones allowed. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to do the women as well, Daddy. So, uh, so that was quite fun. And then Joe Rowling uh, said in an interview that she wanted me to play Hagrid. So then, of course, my son and all his pals, it was, uh, so you're playing Hagrid, are you? So there was a bit of pressure. I think if I hadn't done it, I would have been found dead in a ditch. <laughs> it's, it's a lovely part, but of course, everybody, the kids have read the book, so they've got their own, in their imagination, what exactly, Hagrid, and every exactly. character's like. Yeah. So what did you bring to it yourself, in the, the, the part itself? He's, he's a kind of two-sided guy, old Hagrid, because although he's, he's half human, uh, half giant, so <laughs> not far to go there. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> thank you. So... Um, <laughs> So, uh, but the, the giant side of him has sort of certain unpleasant uh, and unpredictable characteristics, so you have to keep that hovering in the background, and I, I, was, I was quite determined he wasn't going to be a sentimental character. I mean, there's a difference between, uh, you know, a warm feeling character yes. and, and a, a, the last thing we wanted was any sort of, you know, Disney cutesiness. You know? Yes, yes. What about being That's a giant? That's Disney career gone now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Typically self-deprecating there, uh, Robbie Coltrane, uh, and the comedy bones obviously very much in tune with everything he was doing. Speaking to Michael Parkinson about his role as Hagrid in the Harry Potter films. His death was announced today uh, at the age of 72. He is survived by his sister, Annie Ray, uh, 
his children, Spencer and Alice, who were lucky enough to have him read those uh, those books, those Harry Potter books to them, and their mother, Rona Gamble. Uh, Robbie Coltrane dying at the age of 72. Turner. The Sun God is currently opening or open at the National Gallery of Ireland, giving visitors a rare opportunity to view 89 artworks by English artist J.M.W. Turner. The exhibition, in collaboration with the Tate in London, runs through until February the 6th of next year, covering a range of themes from Turner's artistic career, including memory, imagination and synthesis, facing nature, light and atmosphere, darkness is visible, and, of course, the sun is God. The gallery's own annual exhibition of Turner Watercolours, held every January, is hugely popular with visitors and with this exhibition visitors will see a range of superb oil paintings filled with dramatic contrasts of light and dark along with various weather effects. To tell us more about Turner's work and specifically what's on display in this exhibition we're joined by co-curator of Turner the Sun is God at the National Gallery of Ireland Neve McAnally. Um, Neve, 89 artworks that we, you have on display uh, is this is this one of the biggest exhibitions of of Turner's work that has been in the country? Oh, absolutely! This is our major autumn show, and it's the first time that these works have ever been shown in Ireland. Mm. They're all coming from the Tate's collection, and they all um, comprise uh, works from the Turner bequest of eighteen sixty fifty six. So basically, all works that remained in his studio on his death. So we have a real range of artworks uh, from majestic kind of landscapes in the Alps. We have magnificent mythological subjects. We have stunning views of the likes of Venice and Margate and Lucerne and a wealth of absolutely exquisite watercolours showing his real obsessive interest in mm. a sense in the likes of light and atmosphere. Yeah, light and atmosphere. Every January when that exhibition of the watercolours goes up, it's always the talk about the light and how he manages to do that with watercolours. But let's let's talk a little bit about the specifics of some of the works that are on show as part of this new exhibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, uh, and in fact, it's up there at the moment at RTE Arena if you want to just look at the images that Neve McNally is speaking to us about as we go along here. This first image going to the ball San Martino first exhibited in 1846 Uh, this is one of those light and atmosphere really paintings of, of Turner's isn't it? Exactly. And this is a, an exquisite painting uh, showing really the jewel of the Adriatic. Like Venice for Turner was a source of endless inf- inspiration uh, throughout his life, basically. He only uh, spent uh, three very short visits in Venice. But nonetheless, um, from around 1833 to 46, Venetian scenes made up a third of his output. Mm. So, you know, Turner was very canny as a businessman. He realised that Venice was a very popular subject. And this is an exquisite painting showing, you know, um, people going to a masquerade ball across the lagoon and it really feeds into the whole subject of Turner, the sun is God because, of course, Turner in his final week said, the sun is God. And this is a goal, I mean, there's such a golden hue of this particular painting. Exactly. This particular exhibition uh, comprises a wealth of beautiful paintings and the whole idea about the exhibition is that it will basically kind of bathe people in light and atmosphere. And, of course, Turner not only endeavoured to paint the sun but also reproduce its radiant energy so I'm hoping in the winter months the people <laughs> will be uplifted yeah. by this beautiful uh, sense of glowing light just because um, um, uh, I, I have pencil sizers kind of thumbnail um, versions of the images in front of me what size are we talking about in the case of that particular 
this is not a terribly big canvas, but it packs a punch. You know, yeah. it's it's very uh, dramatic in that we're kind of drawn in by the light. But also we have that notion of the setting sun and um, the way in a lot of the paintings, the late canvases in the final room of the exhibition, because of that kind of glowing nature of them, it we can see that Turner is basically less and less interested in topography. You know, the likes of the facades start being almost yeah. kind of obliterated by the light. Yeah, because in, in some ways that there, there's almost, it is a kind of smoky light and atmosphere that we're looking at. Let's move on to something which is a bit more figurative, I would hazard a guess at saying. This is a second image at RTE Arena, if you want to look at it, the fall of an avalanche in the Grisson. Well, Turner first went to uh, the Swiss Alps in 1802 and he was absolutely blown away by the the kind of sublime landscapes that he experienced there. He was known for scaling great heights and going down into deep gorges in order to uh, look at the nature at first hand. Uh, This is an amazing painting in which a giant boulder basically crushes a chalet and um, he amplifies, of course, the drama in the scene by including whirling rain wind and snow as the backdrop to this disaster. Because, of course, um, he's referring back to reports of a a lethal avalanche in a place called Selva in the Grisson in December 1808 Mm. that actually claimed many lives. And in terms of... like. Is this an imagined scene from him? Because he obviously wasn't standing looking at the avalanche coming down and sketching it, or was he? Of course. Well, he travelled, as I said, through this area in 1802. Mm. Uh, He would have compiled a huge body or repository of watercolours and sketches of the area, but then utilised those sketches along with his incredible imagination to create spectacular paintings like this. Let's move on to a third image then uh, at RTE Arena. If you want to see these images, uh, Neve McNally speaking to us about the Son is God, the Turner, the Son is God, to give it its correct title, the the exhibition currently running at the National Gallery of Ireland. I love the title here. The New Moon is one title, but then or. I've lost my boat. You shan't have your hoop. This is an interesting one. Again, this is an exquisite painting in the in the gallery um, on show at the moment. It dates to 1840. It's an oil painting on mahogany and it's beautifully uh, coloured and it depicts the Kent coast at Margate on, again, mm. a warm summer's evening. Of course, Margate was one of those places that Turner absolutely loved visiting time and again because he said himself that the, uh, the skies in Margate were the loveliest in all of Europe. Um, he and, and the fact that this is called, I'll come to the second part of the title in a minute, in a minute, is, is there is it moonlight that we're seeing off in the background? There, or is, there, is there no mention? Is there no sight of a moon here at all? Well, there is. If you if you look up in the sky, okay, we have the setting sun, but we mm. also have the the rising moon. In As it. you would get sometimes in the evening, you see that the two things appearing almost at the same time. And that time. was the magic of Turner. Yeah. He was combining the two in the one. But one art critic, when it was shown originally uh, in 1840, said that this new moon has the merit of being perfectly novel. It rem- rem- resembles basically no moon that has ever yet illumined the heavens. The substance appears to be putty. So, uh, you know, (laughs) Turner was derided and applauded in equal measure during his lifetime. What about the second part of the title? I've lost my boat, you shan't have your hoop. Is this a reference to the figures that we can see running? That's that's in reference to the two small children um, in the lower uh, left-hand corner where one is holding up a hoop. So obviously they're having a little argument. So I like to think of Turner on the beach himself, on Margate Sands, looking at this little incident. 
Yeah, and, and again, it, it is quite figurative in those terms. I think there's a little dog in there as well, isn't there? There's a little dog, but if you see in the far off distance on the horizon, he's introduced the steamboat. And of course, that's why a lot of, um, you know, patrons and a lot of clientele loved his work, a lot of industrialists, a lot of nouveau riche and middle class, because he engaged with the modern world. You yeah. know, he incorporated steamboats and steam engines and reflected Britain back to its people. Let's put up a further image. Um, the dark, is it Rigi or Rigi? The Rigi, yes. The Rigi, the dark Rigi. Um, again, this is very atmospheric and, and it's almost as if we're above the clouds with a mountain in the distance. What exactly are we looking at here, Neve? Well, we're looking at the famous Swiss mountain known as the Rigi, overlooking Lake Lucerne. And this was one of Turner's most celebrated subjects. He absolutely adored the place. He would have visited there on numerous occasions on his late excursions to Switzerland because of the very dramatic scenery, was a real Mm. stimulus for his imagination. And he would have created a lot of watercolour studies looking at this particular mountain at different times of day and under different light effects and climactic conditions. So hence, you think of the Impressionists today, of course, they were looking at Turner and celebrating this kind of investigation. I think the images that we've spoken the the first three up until now were all oils but the the riggy here the dark riggy is a watercolour This is a watercolour and it's one of those kind of innovative watercolour sketches as I said that chart the fleeting effects of uh, rapidly changing light and weather at different times Mm. of day and of course he would have looked at this particular motif from his hotel called the Swan Inn and what he's producing here is what's called a sample study that he would have prepared for his agent to basically show to prospective clients in the hope of maybe uh, getting a more um, a commission for a more finished work. Yeah. So, but to be honest, today some of these uh, beautiful uh, riggy watercolors are regarded as some of his kind of finest um, right. displays of of kind of technical mastery in the medium. I'll skip to our final image then: um, the lake. Petworth at sunset again and it links in with the sun is God but even even this sun, even God must be setting in the west on a daily basis um, Tell us a little bit more about this and at RTE Arena if you want to see the image that Neve McNally is, is speaking to us about. This is an absolutely beautiful work um, dating to around 1827-88 and it's entitled The Lake Petworth Sunset and it's again a sample study uh, that he would have done for his one of his key patrons a man called Lord Egremont who had a great collection of old master paintings and an amazing collection of contemporary British paintings, all housed in his house at Petworth Park in Sussex. He would have invited Turner to the house. He supplied Turner with a studio in the house. And it was really kind of a home from home for Turner uh, because uh, Lord Egremont was kind of an interesting character. He had several mistresses dotted about the house. He had up to 17 children racing around the place and he invited artists all the time to the house but he specifically asked Turner to come and do a set of oils for his carved dining room and this is one such study for that well, that's, that's what you can do I suppose if you've got the money there you go <laughs> if you have you the go. money for the paintings and the money for the 17 mistresses off you go and get Turner to visit the house <laughs> um, this this exhibition I suppose Neve, will will add into the the annual watercolour exhibition in January give a, a broader view of the artist it's a much more comprehensive show um, 
when people look at it, they'll really realise the breadth and scope and uh, of Turner's interests uh-huh. and his innovations. Of course, there's an enduring p- appeal for Turner in Ireland already with our annual January show, which will happen again this January. But uh, as I said, it's a really amazing opportunity Super. to really get up and close with Turner's uh, yes. works. Looking forward to getting in to see it for sure. My thanks to Neve McAnally for dropping into us this evening. Neve is the co-curator of Turner the Sun is God, an exhibition that gives viewers a chance to see 89 artworks by the English artist, artworks never seen in this country before. Currently running at the National Gallery of Ireland, will be there until February the 6th, 2023. Full information on nationalgallery.ie. And as always on Friday evening final, a part of the programme is our album reviews. Uh, we'll be talking about Irish indie rock outfit Columbia Mills take aim at the heart of a nation with their new LP. We'll also be discussing Being Funny in a Foreign Language from the 1975. The band exploded into the mainstream in 2013. Never been far from controversy since have uh, they grown up a bit on their fifth album. And we'll start off with Red Hot Chili Peppers. They're back with Return of the Dream Canteen produced by the great Rick Rubin, their second album release if of this year alone, 2022. Are they riding a wave or are they overstaying the welcome? Those are just some of the questions that we'll be, we'll be posing to Zara Hederman and Simon Marr, our reviewers on this Friday evening. But let's start with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and a track called Tip of Me Tongue. We've only just in my announcement of that particular track I went a little bit top of the morning Tip of My Tongue in fact is the title of the track that we just heard from Return of the Dream Canteen from Red Hot Chili Peppers Uh, as I said Zara Hedeman and Simon Marr are reviewers on this Friday evening Return of the <laughs> the Dream Canteen very quickly yeah. after their last album, Zara. Yeah, six months after. I don't think anyone really saw this coming because uh, they had Unlimited Love, which closed mm. a six-year gap and fortuitously came out on April Fool's Day. Um, this now comes out and it is the second double, double album. So Unlimited Love is also a double album. Mm. And basically they just talked about how they got into the studio with Rick, Rick Rubin. They were jamming in the studio, learning old songs. And then they just found that this album, um, as they described it, became everything we are and ever dreamed of being. Well, I have to say, when you, when you listen, and that is the opening track, yeah. tip, a track rather, tip of my tongue, you kind of go, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, mm-hmm. it, yeah. I mean, it just pulled you straight in. Yeah. But um, now I think Zara's been a little bit unfair referring to the first album as a double album. It's 17 tracks. I would say it's an album and a half. This album has 17 tracks, yeah. which is an album and a half, which, and we put the two together as a triple album, which is unforgivable. It is. Oh, no, I think that is, that's definitely true. I think we've discussed this on many occasions before. If you're going past the standard album length, which is 22 and a half minutes either side, forget about it. You need to have a look at yourself. But there are such songs on this, and it's even as I had it on, I was doing other things as I was listening to the album, but there are songs that you would come back to, yeah. and probably eight or ten of them on the album, that you kind of go, oh, yeah, I really like this, and typically 
tip of my tongue is, is one, one, of, of, is them, one yeah. of those. That's slap and bass and the guitar so being good. back, you know, and it's amazing. It's the same notes. It's everything as mm. it always would have been without John Frusciante. But once he's back, it's an entirely yeah. different world. And that, you know, the slappy bass and stuff is in there. And yeah. there's kind of a, it's not quite reggae, but sometimes there's kind of a reggae feel to some of the tracks as well. Or was I just making that up? Yeah, no, I do see what you're coming from. But I think as well with Red Hot Chili Peppers is across their 40 year career, which I couldn't believe it's been that long because I remember them so like specifically in my teenage years <laughs> but they have always done everything from funk rock to alternative rock psychedelic yeah. rock punk rock yeah. so they are able to throw their hand at anything and I do think that one of the things you do get with this album and with Tip of my, my, tongue, my Tongue as well is that they have fun like Anthony Kiedis's lyrics as well like you're not coming to a Red Hot Chili Peppers album looking for poetic genius or anything like that you're here for the instrumentation and as Simon says John Frusciante's back and it, this album is all the better for it mm. as well because yeah. He is brilliant on it. Yeah, let's have a listen to a track called Eddie. It's only 
CCTV well loved live act they've opened for bands like Ride and Public Service Broadcasting and have their biggest headline show to date coming up in the Academy in fact on November 25th a little bit of background um, if, if you would Zara on Columbia Mills from about 2000, 2014 was really when they started to make waves yeah? yeah absolutely and ever since then they've been kind of melding electronica pop indie rock across their songs their three piece uh, Fika Tracy Ushnik Tracy and Steve Ward um, and they've always worked really well together and with the live component with this album as well you can see how their songs would do so well live they're very infectious and uh, Fika Tracy's voice as well is just so great and gravelly and I really really found that quite engaging um, I also mm. thought this was quite an interesting album as well because they prefaced it by saying that um, it deals with circumstances relating to the inequality and effects it has on in individuals from immigration to addiction uh, the eradication of self-confidence and there's a lot of like socio-political content as well in the song yeah. so something that audiences will gravitate yeah, well, to it's, it, the, the title of the album in yeah. fact kind of says what, what it does it does what it says in the tin doesn't it mm -hmm. uh, and here is that title track Heart of a Nation You know, addressing directly building hotels and cellular homes. It it's really is directly addressing lots of contemporary issues. Simon Marr, uh, this is Columbia Mills and the, the new album Heart of a Nation and that the title track that we heard there. How are they, you know, melding in or mixing in the kind of political content of their songs with the style of their music. Yeah, it's it's probably something that's relatively easy for them because there's quite an industrial sound to it. You can mm. imagine particularly that track in a live context with big, big, with huge speakers and that the crowd sort of moving along with it, something like that. So you can probably be quite harsh when you are talking about, in their case, the ills of society mm. with the sort of industrial sound they have. There's a few tracks on the album where they kind of pair it back a bit, which mm. is kind of quite unusual because they've probably come on from when I would have heard the first album seven, eight years ago at this yeah. stage I would have thought there was a bit of a sort of Depeche Mode sound off them but they've really developed as they've gone on and they've probably opened themselves up to being able to do an awful lot more but the thing that I really saw on this album was that they have the confidence in it you know yeah. they've, got, they've because they're talking about the disappearance of mm -hmm. self-confidence in people but definitely in themselves and in their songs there's a real confidence now Yeah because the, the final track in the, or is it the final track yeah it's a 10 track album I think isn't mm -hmm. it uh, Fake Life is that I wondered were they talking about they're not in mega stardom but were they talking about kind of the pressures that are on people to have a front to put on a front to, to kind of show the good side and that's not just for people who are you know, yeah. performing on a, a nightly basis as they may be. They're talking about this for everybody. Exactly, yeah. And I think that they do do that so well. And Fikra addresses all these things with such a very kind of nice colloquial tone where it's very accessible. And as we were saying, the music to it is really good. And what I think as well with the confidence, the confidence on this album is so assured. And what's also great is that this is actually self-produced as well. Mm. Um, and it is, it's 10 songs, it's a 42 minute song. And they do really well to kind of, not necessarily rein everything in, but they say everything that they want to 
and they do it I think quite well as well Yeah, let's have a listen to a track called Feet Don't Fail Me Now and it's about that moment when you know it's time to go get up and walk Feet Don't Fail Me now from Columbia Mills on their new album uh, Heart of a Nation and as we were listening to that Simon you were saying about you can really imagine that in a live setting and that yeah. it kind of can be pumped out there and, kind yeah. of anthemic quality and that, that's the thing I think they're, yeah, they're managing to do anthemic without having to throw all of the toys at it you know yeah. and there's, a, there's a definite talent in being able to do that and I think as I say as they've come on further and further with this album and both in terms of the stories that they're telling which are still very personal because I think mm. if they work well in a sort of a biographic context but definitely musically this is a real progression for them Alright um, start from you Simon I, I'm going to give this four yeah, Very solid four and I think you, you feel there's progression here too particularly in terms of the production quality uh, on this new album Sarah No I loved I loved the production it was more so just the lyrical kind of um, oh, right. the language of it I just felt the Faker can put a bit more of his own language and stamp on some of the turns of phrasing um, but otherwise I thought this was brilliant and I'm going to give it a three and a half uh, Three and a half from Zara for Columbia Mills and Heart of a Nation. Let's move on then to uh, the 1975. NME claimed the 1975 are, quote, back to their best on their fifth album. Being Funny in a Foreign Language is the title of the album. Is their best good enough to impress Zara and Simon? Zara. Yep. <laughs> so tell us how you felt when you were, if I can put you on the psychologist's chair, but... How you felt even when you heard you were going to get another uh, ninety, or another this nineteen seventy five album to listen to? Exhausted, I already, even before you started <laughs> listening. I just kind of seem to not be able to quit this band. I've had to review their last three albums, and they've been long albums. They've been eighty minutes. They've been seventy three minutes. They're overindulgent. Matty Healy, I'm not particularly fond of, but I was happy to see that this is forty four minutes long. But Matty Healy is still Matty Healy. So, and, and the opening track <laughs> is still the nineteen seventy five. They do this yeah. on yeah. every album. Is it a slightly different version of the same song, or is it a totally new version? Yeah. Just called the nineteen seventy. The, the worry that I always have with the 1975 is, is anything new. Like, you know, is that even when you know, Matty, I think between albums, disappeared off Twitter and then decided yeah. he was going to reappear on Twitter as well. I think just because he just loves the attention. Yeah. And he is, we talked about excess with the Red Hot Chili mm. Peppers early, yeah. earlier on. And they're well into this. 1975, Matty Hooley in particular, is madly into this. But it's even when they try to pair it back that bit is that they're still like it's almost like there's a contrived pairing it back to right. do that and to maybe be a slightly more subtle voice they are not subtle right so let's, let's have a listen to a very subtly named track it's called Happiness I'm
1975 and Happiness. That's the lead single, in fact, I think, off their album Being Funny in a Foreign Language. Do you like that uh, album title, by the way, Zara? No, I don't. <laughs> um, I like very little about this band, to be honest. And I will actually preface that, like, even though I did have a huge disdain for this band, I always will go into something with an open mind. And I did try. And there were parts, like the opening song, I thought Matty Healy's vocals were actually okay. nice. But no, I incorrigible. Yeah, I didn't like this at all. Yeah, I'm, is there any saving grace on it? I mean, I've, I was looking down to, I, like, that's one that the, the yeah. ha- happiness that we heard there, second track in the album, I thought, hey, that has a nice, happy disco feel to it. You could, you yeah, know, yeah. kind of, you'd well, be look, smiling listening to it. They're a massive stadium band, and this will sell by the bucket load. And occasionally, there are moments, there's one track in the album yeah. called Human 2, where he refers back to his excesses of the previous album, and he apologises, and he comes out and says, this is something I did. He, he decided he, he would like to wear a, right. a suicide vest, but it was still like... Yeah. Just come bad on, taste. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. really is bad taste. But uh, as I say, at least, right. at least, it's only forty-four minutes this time. Forty-four I minutes. How many stars? For this. Two and a half. Two and a half for that. I'm going to go two. You're going to go two for the 1975 being funny in a foreign language. We also spoke about Columbia Mills, Heart of a Nation, uh, Return of the Dream Canteen, and Red Hot Chili Peppers. 